Welcome home. You're listening to the 180 Church Podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends. Dr. Sammy D. Kim is a Harvard-trained ethicist and co-founder of 180 Church NYC. He is a Yale Hastings Scholar at the Yale Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics and the Hastings Center, where he explores the inequities surrounding health, immigration, and social policies, along with professional burnout. He is also a regular contributor to Christianity Today. For more information, please visit his website at samdkim.com. Welcome all those alive in the present and presently in the theater and those watching in different parts of the country and the world on live stream on YouTube. Welcome. Just going to give you a moment to practice uh, before we practice the rule of life, a moment to center yourself, to slow down and in Exhale and inhale the presence of God while in exhaling just all the worries that you might have at this moment. So let's bow our heads together. And exhale. All those automatic thoughts the vitriol, the fear that's dominating uh, our current landscape of our world right now. And inhale the presence, the transcending peace of God when we supplicate our fears and anxieties to Him. All God's people pray. Amen. Let's put this picture up here. As we move back into our series in the fruit of the Spirit, some people have called my son and I twins. Well, he does get the cuteness from me. I don't know about his mom, but he's actually... No, just kidding. Um, that might get me in trouble. But um, internally, he's a lot like his mom, but... We, we kind of look alike. We do have the same blood type. My oldest son definitely doesn't have my blood type. I'm type A. I'm A blood type. Um, he's O. But um, raising a son, youngest, in this picture, he graduated kindergarten. That's a big deal. And uh, a few years ago, as a gift, we gave him a fanny pack. And he was very proud of it. It was like a G.I. Joe fanny pack, and he wore it to Union Square. And um, he got some birthday money, so he got $10 and put it in his fanny pack. And he kept telling everybody, I got a new fanny pack. This fanny pack is so cool, right? And he just wanted to use the money that uh, he got for his birthday. He kept saying, I'll pay for it. But anytime he actually, if, if he, some of you actually do children's ministry or get to know Josh, when he says he'll pay for it, he means he wants you to pay him back with interest. <laughs> and he will. He, uh, he'll bother you until he gets the money, so be careful, okay? I warn you. But uh, in Union Square, he was with Sean, actually, and um, this lady in distress comes out of nowhere right near Union Square Park and says to Josh, do you have $2? I have to get home. And, and Josh is like, oh, my God, I have my fanny pack. Of course you can have $2. He opened this fanny pack, counted his money, 
and gave the women in distress as he was a hero in his story and gave her $2. And he told us, told us this story excitingly, proud. And we told him, Josh, she does that every day. And he was like, what? She stole my money? And we're like, yeah. This is what I call the malaise of misfortune. Tell someone next to you, the malaise of misfortune. You're like, well, what is that, the malaise of misfortune? It's a fancy way of saying, when misfortune like poverty or homelessness or even mental illness, and you're ailed by it, it makes personal responsibility a bit hazy. Just because someone is, you know, moral injury or harmed or have been harmed doesn't mitigate or abdicate your responsibility in your life. Or doesn't mitigate manipulation. As she was homeless, but taking advantage of a child. A lot of times in our culture, especially in the church, a lot of times what we tell our culture and our friends, and even within the church, is we don't want to rock the boat. We don't know what people are going through. And so we tell people, hey, you do you. Tell someone next to you, you do you. you, do you. That's a neutral stance. Hey, you do you. Because if you say you do you, I agree with it. Uh, you know, It's not an endorsement, but hey, you do you. Why? Because it absolves you a personal responsibility as well to get into any messes, especially what we call, last week we talked about living in a CPR world, right? COVID ravaged, politically polarized, and racially divided. We don't want to rock the boat. But this is particularly important for the church to have clarity about what love really is. Because love is very different from pity. Assaging over personal responsibility or mistakes. And for a lot of secular people, this aspect of personal responsibility, admitting to mistakes. How many people, raise your hand if you like admitting to mistakes right here. Raise your hand. I like it. My wife says, hey, we need to talk. Why? I took out the garbage last night. You forgot the recycling. When she goes, we need to talk, I know it means I need to apologize for something. I might not even be aware of. But we don't like admitting to mistakes. If you look at just um, studies, quantitative studies stacked based on the idea of feedback. For many years, Harvard Business School, Wharton, all tried to help the feedback giver, the person giving the feedback, skills. What you need to do is say perhaps. Tell someone next, perhaps. Perhaps this is a growth area in your life. Perhaps. Perhaps if you did it another way, or your tone of voice, you know, make it raspy and, you know, like you're sincere. <laughs> if you just thought about it. <laughs> and so they quantified the data of giving feedback in a nicer tone, using different etymology. And it turns out after quantifying all the data, the narrative is no one likes to hear any criticism. Doesn't matter how you give it. You can, you can give it wrapped in chocolate. And I really like chocolate. 
But if you say, hey, but, well, what's the but about? What's the but about? If you collectively accumulate the feedback our culture, our world receives, it's equivalent to 80,000 years every day. Grades, quarterly reports, if you add all that up, it's like thousands and thousands of years. We should be wiser. Is the culture getting wiser? No. And so what ha ends up happening is we think that loving people is just letting them be themselves, or the culture be themselves, or our friends be themselves. But that doesn't bring change. If you look at the word pity in the Webster Dictionary, if you look at the etymology section, it comes the word piety, or the word pious. Pious is a, what, duty, faithful duty based on obligation. Pity is transactional. Love is transformative. If we want to transform our lives and the people in our lives and the world, pity is coughing out in many ways because we don't want to rock the boat. And if we look, go back to this passage in John 8, if you, haven't, if you weren't here last week about empathy, you could catch up on YouTube. But we're going to today discuss the very critical difference between pity and love because if the Spirit of God in this series, the Fruit of the Spirit series, is forming love in us, then you have to have a very clear clarity about what God is forming in you. Because pity is not love. It's contrast to love, opposed to pity. So let's look at that text and learn the difference. So we talked about it last week in the Law of Moses. Um, the Pharisees comes to rile up the crowd. Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath and says, uh, the Law of Moses commands us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, right? To stir up the Pax Romana, to, to stir up and disturb the peace of Rome and to stir up the outrage of the Jews because for them their framework of sin keeps them in captivity to Rome. So caught in that trap, that tension. But it says here, uh, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now you know it's the Sabbath and the Sabbath prohibits in the law to not write on paper or anything except the ground. So Jesus is actually, you know, this is a drama for him. It's like Shakespeare. He bends down and starts to write on the ground with his finger, letting the Pharisee know, see, I'm allowed to do this in the law. And he's, you know, writing on the ground. Everybody's in suspense. When they what? Kept questioning him. They kept what? Trying to entice him. He straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. You could say a lot of scholars through this text thought about why Jesus stooped and wrote on the ground. Yes, he knows the law, wanted the Pharisees to know, but a lot of people say he was trying to buy time because it was a very tense situation. The vitriol, fear was out of control, sort of like our culture, right? Where impulse is controlling a lot of our reactions. And it's a very tense situation. 
And Jesus here in verse 9 says, as the older ones first started to leave, and the, only the women was standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? What does verse 11 say? Read together. No one, sir, she said. Then neither, I, neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. And Jesus could have stopped in the malaise of misfortune of this woman being caught up in a scandal between Rome and her people and being vulnerable, exploited and subjugated to men using for political expediency and being through that trauma. Jesus could have, neither do I condemn you. Go in peace. Jesus didn't have to rock the boat. No one was there. It was just him and her. Why say, neither do I condemn you, but go now and says, what does it say? Leave your life of what? Sin. Tell someone next to you, leave your life of sin. Put that in the judgmental tone. Leave your life of sin. In the haziness of misfortune and moral injury, in the most humiliating moment, naked, covered with a piece of cloth, a lot of us would say, let's not say anything. It's awkward enough as it is. It's adding insult to injury. That's how we feel in our culture. That's adding insult to injury. Political correctness. But you see Jesus navigating through many, the complexity of many different cultures and belief systems. And still, even in the thick of misfortune, deals with personal responsibility. Deals with actual actions. Let's put this picture up here. I have a habit of skipping through movies because I have a very weak stomach for cringe-worthy moments. The problem is, my oldest son and my wife love them. They're sick people. I pray for them and their salvation all the time. But I have a habit, if I'm watching my most, I'm fast, like, literally, how'd you watch that here? I fast-forwarded the thing. Can't watch that, the awkward moments. Uh, the odd sexual moments, the, you know, the real cringeworthy moments, like when Voldemort hugs this Draco. I was like, oh, my God, fast forward, fast forward. And, he, and then Voldemort says, well done, well done. I'm like, oh, my God. That's like the devil hugging you. And, and the, the problem is my family hates it or maybe hates me because I, what, ruined the movie. But I don't care. <laughs> I don't care because I'm, I just want to get out of that situation. I don't want to look through those lenses because it's, you know, it's uncomfortable. But they go, why do you do that? We're watching together. Well, it's like me watching by myself. I don't know if you care. You're here. You're just going to have to do what I want to do. But you're ruining the movie. A lot of people say that. I ruined the movies, the plot lines. I say it too fast. Well, you, that's because you watch it too late. <laughs> but, okay. But here, here it is. 
Why is it critical to know the difference between pity and love? First lesson we learn in this text is simple. Read it with me. Pity what? Seeks relief, but love seeks change. My, my family says, you're ruining the movie, but I don't care because I'm seeking relief. I want to get out of the situation. That's what pity does. Pity is not about the person. You're not pitying the person. It's a form of piety, right? The Latin etymology, the obligation to myself to get out of this situation fast as possible. Ooh, okay, good luck with that. Bye. Pity is not feeling a sense of compassion for the trouble or the moral injury of the person in it. It's for me to detach fast as possible. And that's easy to do in our world, especially in the CPR world. But Jesus enters the mess because love is commitment. Nothing more, nothing less. The, ver the very first definition of love Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 13 is what? Love is both two things. Love is what? Patient and kind. I have patience for my kids, but being kind is hard. You try, you be a parent, kindness is hard, folks. That duality, that confluence of patience and kindness, it's tough. One of the things you'll realize when, when you become a parent and then you, you're, you're raising kids is waking them up. I let my wife do it. <laughs> She has a commitment to them. I don't. Uh, God is working on me, for me. I know what's going to happen if you try to wake up kids. Think about this. You're waking them up for their sake to get educated, to go to school. The breakfast she already cooked for them, but they're mad at you for waking them up because they can't wake up by themselves. Why are... And they're mean. Like, no, get away. It's like, why am I doing this? Commitment. It's not like we could get rid of them now. <laughs> we can't get rid of them. We're committed to them. We're committed to them because that's what love is. Love is commitment. It's entering the mess of annoying, immature people. It got, unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, put in our lives. The Malaysian misfortune makes things hazy, like I said. So you have to think about this in your life. Are you seeking relief? Because Jesus had the audacity to want change, want better for her. C.S. Lewis says that love is your commitment to the greatest good of another. Not like, I don't want to deal with your mess. I'm not going to judge you, but I'm not going to help you either. Jesus believes for more for her. That's love. And a lot of times, that's why our gospel witness for, for believers in our church, sometimes we just say, hey, you do you. But we forget that's not what love is. Love is commitment to the greatest good, which is the gospel is the greatest good. 
letting Jesus come into people's lives, faith come in. It's cowardly. And we do it. Because like Richard Foster said, the greatest uh, need for this world is not smarter people. We have plenty of smarter people. We need deeper people. Tell someone next to you, deeper people. Not so things run hollow and shallow, but we need the Spirit to form in us people that actually are committed to the greatest good of someone else. And yes, it's messy. Jesus coming as the incarnate Lord in the human body was messy, in a manger, full of manure. That's really what it means to love, to, to enter in the mess of people's lives. And that's, that takes process, and that's difficult. So I pray the Spirit will show you if you're seeking relief or actually seeking change, because love requires change. Let's move down. So we said in the malaise of misfortune, things get hazy. And we don't want to rock the boat and add insult to injury. But here Jesus declared, go. I don't condemn you, Jesus said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. But go now, leave your life of sin. They did a compiling report at the top business schools, Wharton, Harvard Business, Stanford. And they said that the greatest collateral damage that happens in corporate America and Wall Street is not that people don't know what to say. They just don't have the courage to say it. One of the greatest crises in medicine it's personal, interpersonal relationships. People don't like each other in the workforce. One of the greatest problems, why um, the second leading cause of death in hospitals is medical errors, because people don't want to admit to mistakes. Or admit to their mistakes or their faults to their peers. That creates divisions in teams, in residence programs, in hospitals. People know exactly what they should say, but they'll never say it. And they'll euphemize it. Because people lack courage. They don't want to rock the boat. Because it's easy to say nothing. This is the reverse now. It's easy to say nothing. Because it doesn't cost you anything to say nothing. You're, you'll be in a static position. But to have the courage to say something to actually bring change. To speak the truth requires courage. And Jesus had courage. Love is fierce. Love is not nice. French word for nice, we say this all the time, is what? Ignorant. Tell someone next, you're ignorant. We tell, we tell Christians, go be nice in the world. Go, you're saying, be, go ignorant. Be pious. Just assage over all the destructive, maladaptive behaviors that are destroying society and destroying our own life and not add value. Take away value. Or be neutral in value. And a lot of, and this is for, for believers in our, in our church, 
than those watching online. We think that this is a post-Christian world, deconstruction, post-modern theory of relativity, and no one is interested in exclusive claims anymore. How do we even tackle that? And you know, I thought about this personally in my own life, and I learned in a culture of interfaith spaces that people are very interested in truth in a CPR world. As you know, I'm, I'm an ethicist, a bioethicist trained at Harvard. And one of the reasons they invited me, 25 years, to put this picture up here, I am the first self-identified evangelical minister in the beginning of the bio, bioethics programs at Harvard Medical School to be invited to participate and appointed to do research and to study bioethics. On the first day, they went around to tell us that the intersectionality of the fellows selected was for a diverse views of trying to find the core for why we can have an ethical perspective in a postmodern society. What is our foundation for morality? What is our foundations for social justice? What is our foundation for even the idea of equity? Why should it be fair? Or why should you have skin in the game? Why can't it just be Darwinian, the strongest survive and oppress? He said, Sam, we invited you because we saw your work with DACA, the dreamers, and social justice work. And one of the things that we're grappling with in bioethics is we're not sure how we can have a mandate for morality at all, or ethics at all, or autonomy, or freedom, or justice, how we can say anything from a secular perspective. And they said, when we dug and dug, we found bioethics, and the idea of ethics really comes from the Catholic background. The ethicists were Catholic theologians, the Jesuits, Henry Nouwen and others from Georgetown. They're the ones that created ethics from a moral lens. They said, we're very interested in your perspective on this because we're grappling in a vacuum. If there is no foundation for morality, how can, how can we have this? I was really surprised. Because I was thinking, how would I introduce myself? What is the minister doing at Harvard Medical School? But they told me straight off the bat, that's why. We want to understand the ethical framework of the tradition of the church, giving that imago Dei that value, that we're inherently valuable. So, so believers in this room, tell, tell someone next to you, they want to hear you. You go, no, no, they want to hear me? Yes. There is a place for exclusive claims, an overarching truth. Because right now, if you look at our world, we're trying to find a reason why we should fight anything at all. If everything is relative and everything is, there's no exclusive truth, then how can you claim for justice or equity or equality? You can't. The whole idea of morality creates a need for a framework of faith. 
And right now in medicine particularly, there is a revival of spirituality and transcendence and seeking because of that reason. So if you think the world has gone completely post-Christian, you're wrong. It still says Christian in the end. And you can't erase that. And the historian in Oxford, Tom Holland, not the Spider-Man, but the historian, <laughs> wrote a book recently called Dominion. And he said even though he is an agnostic historian, he has to credit the cross and Jesus Christ being the falcrum of morality in Western civilization. He goes, before Jesus, this world, and if you study history, was brutal and barbaric. Now he goes, I won't throw someone off the balcony because I think that's wrong, but I don't know why I think that's wrong. I just implicitly know, axiomatically, I shouldn't, because somehow Jesus, as a, I'm an agnostic, borderline atheist, to say that everybody has some inherent value. Or maybe if I'm not going to throw them off the balcony, they really have inherent value. So in a sense, I'm a Christian, just not a Christian. He goes, I'm dumbfounded. And this whole book is becoming you know, huge right now in, 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 through historians. Because it shows you, yeah, we're post-Christian, but still Christian. So I'll pray right now. Second truth, why pity is different from love. Why it's important to know the difference in this particular moment in history is this. Pity is what? But love requires courage. And I think right now in the church we lack courage. Because we have this assumption that we're so post-Christian, so relative. No one is interested in faith conversations. That's wrong. Billy Graham Center, Wheaton College says, 86% of secular people are interested in conversation of faith, but only 40% do it. it. means 46% of people are not doing it. What would happen if the Holy Spirit, you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, had faith conversation? Because people are looking for the foundation of justice, morality, of equity, of equality. We have it. We're the ones that started it. And for the seeker, there's something about what Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin. And why he uses that word sin particularly. And one of the greatest offensive things about the gospel is that Jesus says you need to take personal responsibility for the faults and the harm that you have committed in your life. And that's never going to be a sans over. And that doesn't feel good. But there's no reason for the church, if you're a seeker, if that cannot be reconciled. And you're like, well, I don't believe in the Bible, and I don't really believe in Jesus. Oh, we don't even need the Bible, special revelation. We're just talking about your own moral values, because you do have them. Because how many people here judge people? I judge. C.S. Lewis talks about the law of more, human nature, the law of morality, right? Meaning everybody has a metric for judging people. I judge people all the time. And I use the word should, like Lewis says in Mere Christianity, you shouldn't do that. You should do this. I tell my sons all the time, you shouldn't do that. You should give me the first bite. <laughs> it's about equality. Yours is mine and mine's is mine. But we have these shoulds, right? I mean, 
So if you break your should like lying, we go, well, it's relative. Well, if you don't like someone lying to you and you lie to others, then you're guilty. And the thing is, in a post-Christian world, so many people are struggling with personal guilt and agony of the things they're ashamed of, thoughts, behaviors. And let me tell you, the church has no meaning if Jesus doesn't hold us and resolve sin. And the whole point is you can't save yourself. Jesus redeems this woman of her sin, of her, the judgment of her sin, but Jesus also empowers her to leave her life of sin and shows her a better way. So in the malaise of misfortune, that's going to be the hard part. How am I going to reconcile my own falling short of my own values? Not even what the Bible says, but what I believe I don't do. The incongruence of my own morality of my own life. How am I going to reconcile that? How am I going to change that? How am I going to love anyone if I can't even uphold my own moral framework? Practically applicable in my own life. And that is where Jesus comes in. You can't be the hero of your own journey. That's the offensive part. There's no self-help. There's no book. There's no pill that can save you from that. The Bible and the gospel says only Jesus can save you and lead you from that. Here's something I found fascinating. In the major textbook that Harvard uses for bioethics, let's turn my mic off, sorry. And I underlined it because I was dumbfounded reading in the summer. And it says that um, the primary difference is that the common morality has authority in all communities, whereas particular moralities are authoritative only for specific groups. Second, we accept moral pluralism in a particular moralities, as discussed later in this chapter, but we reject moral pluralism or relativism in the common morality. Now, Harvard just posited that there is an, an exclusive claim because the title of this book is called Bioethics. You can't have bio and ethics together without morality, without autonomy, without freedom, without equity. There's no way you can have it. So the whole takeaway from this for the believer is we really need to grapple with our own assumptions about how the world is operating and the need for the gospel. Because Jesus here in this text shows us we need to enter the mess. And love requires sacrifice and commitment. And if we keep moving away from personal responsibility of mission, then we're going to become shallow, not formed by the love, the agape love of God. How could Jesus die on the cross for the world and us simply do nothing? When Jesus said the Great Commission is to go and tell, make disciples of all nations, there's an incongruence there, isn't there? And for the believer, I mean, for the seeker, Jesus shows us that he has mercy and love for all of us who have fallen short. He won't humiliate us or shame us, but restore us. And that's the story we find ourselves in this text. And I think it's beautiful. The perfect balance of grace and truth found in Jesus Christ the only hope in this world. And for the seeker, 
No one is saying, hey, you need to give your life to Jesus right now. Anybody here said to someone on your first date, I love you? Well, I did. But we knew each other for four years. So that gives me an excuse. But if someone says in your first date, hey, let's get married. You know, there's mentally ill person there. Or they're struggling with something. No one is saying in our church ever, you come to service for the first time or two times, I'm ready to accept Christ. I've seen this happen, and it flips the other way. I don't believe in God anymore, two weeks later. <laughs> no one is saying you need to make a commitment, an irrational commitment, to say, okay, I'm going to be a Christian. No, we're saying that sometimes, even if you're not a Christian, like Lewis says in your Christianity, you might be more Christian than you think. Don't make a rash decision. No, if you're going to get married, there's, you know, there's all these stages, right? Like, you know, first date, second date, first kiss, whatever that is. And, you know... Proposal, marriage ceremony, that's all of that. And so it's a process, and that's okay. Just like in, uh, in a month, we're going to have a baptism ceremony. Let's give God a clap offering for that. And for who, and, uh, forever, if you're, if, you're, if you're coming to our church and you haven't been baptized, you want to make a public declaration, tell your uh, small group facilitator that you want to be baptized, and we're going to have a lunch and talk about that for the fall baptism. Our youngest son will get baptized this year, and um, he has the funniest story that he's going to tell about what happened at school, about him sharing his faith, and it's hilarious. But I'm not going to, that's like a little teaser for the baptism. So please tell your facilitator you want it. But you know, I really feel in my spirit that God is calling us, like Jesus, to step out, enter people's messes doubts and fears, and let love win. Not, not this false notion of love, but true love, agape love, that commits to the greatest good of others. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Will you lift your hands to the Lord with me today? as a sign of surrender. And for the believer, perhaps you need to surrender your fears. Surrender our superficiality, our, our comfort. Right, because salvation is surrender, but sanctification is war. Some of us might need to surrender our addiction to comfort our cowardice to say, Lord, that's not who I want to be. I want to be the light. I want your power to shine through me. I don't want to just be an example. I want to tell people about the greatest example in you. Because Jesus did not show mercy simply in silence. He spoke Paul tells us in Romans that how could anyone hear the gospel if someone doesn't go? We might need to repent of our idleness and say, God, give me the courage, the depth to be able to be the light. For the seeker, it's going to be surrender. Surrendering 
my pride, my doubts, being overwhelmed, my addiction to control, and inviting Christ to do a work in me. So wherever you might be, far, close, or somewhere in between, the gospel story is your story. Let's make this our prayer today. I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the name of all names. For it has the power. It has the power. Heal and to save. To heal and to save. Strength for the weary. Strength for the weary. And peace to the troubles. To the troubled soul, peace to the troubled soul. It's the name. It's the about the, hearing, the, the story and the historicity of Christianity is, is true. Paul says that, that Christianity is not a matter, the gospel is not a matter of talk, but power. Like, without power, well, there is no way that it gets this far. Just through the lens of history. We're in the middle of Union Square in a movie theater talking about Jesus. Not watching a movie. Not Black Widow. Not Venom. We just saw that. That was pretty good. And, but I won't ruin it for you. <laughs> but um, we're in a movie theater in the middle of downtown Manhattan, near the campuses of NYU, talking about Jesus. For the believer, have confidence. That when your mouth opens his name and you open your mouth and declare who he is, that the Holy Spirit's power will show up like it did in the resurrection on the third day. It's not a matter of talk, it's power. When you talk, the Holy Spirit comes in power. <clears throat> and for the seeker, you need to really think about why a bunch of young people on a Sunday, it's not at brunch, but talking about Jesus at a church, standing down, standing up like 80 times why that's happening 
There's something there. Tell someone next. There's something there. There's something there. You bow your heads for the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. All God's people say, Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. My name is Minyoung. I'm a member here at 180 Church, and we're so glad that you were able to attend today's service with us. Um, there are a few community news that I'd like to share with you all. The first announcement is about our tithes and offering. We want to remind all of our members here at 180 Church to keep God in the center of your life, which includes your finances. You guys can do so through the online payment method shown on the screen. You can give through Venmo at Church 180, Zelle and Chase QuickPay at offering at 180church.tv, or if PayPal is your preferred method of giving, you can head over to our website at 180church.tv where there is a link to donate through PayPal. Our next announcement is about our prayer text hotline at 180 Church, which is available on text at 5397prayer and also via email at prayer at 180church.tv. This is a resource for everybody and especially during this difficult time where we need some prayer and support, there is a prayer team that's ready to help you and to pray for all the requests that you may have. Um, if your prayers have been answered, you can also share them on the text hotline and we can celebrate the good news together. Next up is about small groups at 180 Church. These are smaller pockets of our community that meet on a weekly basis where we can dive a little bit deeper into the word and share how the message from that Sunday uh, spoke to us. We have a few different groups that are all meeting virtually now. And if you're not currently connected with the group, you can reach out to Pastor Billy at the email shown on the screen and he can get you plugged in into a group for you. On the topic of community, we also have a number of different social media handles and channels where you can follow us, like us, and love us during the week. We have a Tumblr page at 180BRG where we post a chapter of the Bible a day so you can read through the Bible with us. We also have a Facebook page at 180 Church. Dr. Sammy, our head pastor here at 180 Church, has a Twitter handle at Dr. Sammy Kim. We also have a YouTube channel at 180 Church NYC, where I'm sure most of you guys are watching us right now. And we also have two different Instagram pages at 180 Church and also at 180 BRG, where there are really encouraging posts and verses that get shared there. So I hope you guys will follow us there and be encouraged. We also have the 180 Church podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends, where you can tune into a conversation and a dialogue that goes into goes into the word a little bit deeper with Pastor Lydia and Joe Lu, who's a member of our community here. It's always a great time just listening to them um, converse about how the message has spoke to them and has impacted them, and you can see how it can do the same for you. We also have a virtual 180 Cafe on the Discord app where you guys can come hang out at any time in different groups on different channels. And it's an easy way to stay connected with the community and also check in with one another. As you might have seen on our social media channels, we launched a care package delivery service called 180 Cares. And this is a great way to um, show appreciation and love to the people in our lives that, mean, that may need some encouragement. If you'd like to send one of these boxes or just want to learn more, you can go check out our website at 180church.tv slash 180cares. And lastly, if you've been blessed by our Sunday worship led by Pastor Lydia, you can visit the 180 Church Studios on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. 
Here you'll find a playlist of all the worship songs we feature every Sunday, and it's perfect for when you want to immerse yourself in worship during the week. That's all of our community news. Once again, we want to thank everyone for joining us this Sunday, and we hope to see you again soon. Bye.